You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, Trey and I discuss the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Shareholders Meeting. We do this once a year, and it's always one of my favorite episodes. In this episode, we'll play some of the best audio clips from the marathon Q&A session with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and Trey and I will pin some color around it afterwards. If you like Trey and me and are part of the Berkshire tribe, you'll absolutely love this episode. So without further delay, here we go. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and today I'm here with my co-host, Trey Lockerbie. Unfortunately, I couldn't be at the meeting this year, but you were there, Trey, together with our host, Clay Fink from Million Investing, Robert Leonard from Real Estate 101, and William for Richer, Wiser, Happier. How was it to be back? Well, I think it was really refreshing to be there, for lack of a better word. It was really exciting. The energy in the room was palpable. When Buffett and Munger first took the stage, the whole 30 to 40,000 people did a standing ovation, which I just thought was I had never seen that before at the meeting. And I think it just showcased how privileged people felt to be there and how appreciative they are to be there. And, you know, Warren's 91, Munger is 98. They could have easily just not done this. Right? They are more than entitled to do another virtual event, stay at home, be safe from COVID and everything else. But they went all in on this. I mean, there, yes, you had to be vaccinated to be there, but there was no masks required. You know, no one was wearing masks. So they were totally up there, vulnerable in a way, taking on the realities of the world and facing them directly and prioritizing the opportunity to meet with their partners, as they put it, in person. And that really spoke volumes for, for everybody in the room. I think everyone was really appreciative of it. How was the TAP event? Did you have a chance to hang out with the community? Yeah. So Clay from our Millennial Investing Show did a really great job coordinating a bunch of different meetups. We did a early morning meetup before the actual meeting itself, where we all got together at 5 a.m. And then Clay and I hosted a little bit of a gathering at the Nebraska Furniture Mart for their barbecue. And then we did a bit of a a bar crawl, although the bars were, I got to say, more populated than they've been in the past. There was one bar we tried to get into that had over a two-hour wait line just to get in. So Omaha was going off. you know. They were in, probably in ways at the rest of the entire year. So it was a very busy event. We had multiple meetups. It was really great to see so many people that I've just known virtually for a number of years now and get to see them finally in person. People from other podcasts, people from other media outlets, people who listen to the show. It was just an overall really, really great opportunity to see everyone and meet them in person for the first time. I'm so sad that I, I couldn't be there. And a long time ago, I had a, had a kidney transplant. And so I, had a, I have a compromised immune system, uh, unfortunately. So whenever I had this conversation with my doctor and I was telling her that I wanted to travel 24 hours, you know, half across the globe to sit in a you know, dome with 40,000 other people who also travel uh, from all over the world, she was like, uh, no. Don't go. <laughs> so, uh, so that was really the reason why I would have loved to have gone back. Uh, luckily, Charlie and Warren, they seemed like they were in good health. I mean, they didn't look 16 based on the recordings that I saw. But like, I think there is a reasonable probability that we can still go many years. I don't know. 
how was it to be in the room, that energy, and how did it look, Trey? Well, first of all, Sig, I mean, completely understandable that you wouldn't be there. And I think you did, you, you made the right decision. But they did actually come across very healthy. That was one thing that I took away from it. I do think Munger fell asleep at one point during the discussion, but you know, he's 98 and that's kind of to be expected. And I will also say that one thing that's just always, always amazes me is just how much they inhale the peanut brittle on stage. I mean, they're eating candy for six straight hours. So they're getting a little bit of that sugar high and a little bit of energy from that. But overall, they seemed really healthy and really energized. Again, like to do that kind of marathon discussion for over six hours at that age is just always impressive to me. So the way that these meetings uh, go, if you haven't watched it on YouTube or haven't been there, is that there's a bunch of questions. I, actually, not. I should say not too many questions this year. I don't know if you felt the same way, Trey. It seemed like, I wouldn't say that Buffett was, because it's, it's Buffett more than Munger who is responding to these questions. I wouldn't say he was rambling, but he, he definitely talked more, <laughs> longer than he used to. So there weren't too many questions. Uh, I don't know. Am I right about that? You're spot on there, Stig, because he even touched on this when they came back from lunch. But essentially, I guess the historical average for the first half of the discussion is somewhere around 14 or 15 questions that they answer. This year, it was only seven. And I think that's because, you know, I think Buffett had prepared quite a bit that he wanted to talk about. And I got the sense that it didn't even really matter what the question was. Each response was averaging, you know, 10 to 15 minutes long just for one question, which obviously was just as enjoyable for me because you're getting to see the kind of inner workings of how his brain thinks and what he spends all year thinking about, you know, what he's kind of prioritized to touch on and create as talking points. It's always interesting to me, but you know, it probably would have been nice to have a little bit more diversity as far as the questions because, you know, at these meetings, as you and I know really well now, you get a lot of the same questions very often. And it's kind of almost rare these days that you get something that really challenges him or something that get, you know, provides a response you haven't heard before. And I think with more questions in the mix, there might have been more of a probability of that happening. Yeah. And, and I think it's a, it's a good point that you raised. Cause, so the way it goes is that you had Becca Quick from CNBC. And so she's the one like, representing all the shareholders who couldn't be there. So people have a chance to email her. And uh, so she, I think she was like every other time. And then there were different podiums for the people actually sitting there going out there. And, you know, I, I have to say, and I, I don't want to sound disrespectful to, you know, people actually going there and asking these questions. I really like whenever Becky is curating them, like for the virtual events, in some ways they were, they were actually better just because, you know, she's really good into you and she picks really good questions. Whereas, you know, you have a lot of people coming up there and, and basically what they're asking, you have that the same thing this year is, tell me, please, Warren Buffett, which stock should I invest in today? And you know, anyone who's been following these meetings, we just know Buffett doesn't like those questions, so he doesn't give a good response. And, you know, he does a song and a dance and stuff like a really high quality question from Becky. So I just wanted to mention that. No disrespect to the people because there were quite a few really, really good questions, but just like overall, Becky just does such a, such a wonderful job. I completely agree. And while there were many other people there, analysts asking questions, there were a number of other standout guests. So there were, you know, obviously, Bill Gates was there, as he usually is, but he's no longer on the board, if you're a member of Berkshire. And Tim Cook from Apple was there, which is probably also not surprising, given that Buffett is now the largest uh, independent stake in that company. But then you had people like Jamie Dimon you know, from JPMorgan Chase. And I even saw Charlie Rose, a number of other 
kind of A-list celebrities that were there. And I think that just added to this sense of this being sort of the annual mecca for economics events, you know, of the entire year where people came from far and wide all over the world. And even people like Jamie Dimon, Tim Cook, you know, they spent the day there to listen to Buffett, even if he was rambling, you know, these, everyone paid their respect to be there and participate in sort of this annual gathering of, to kind of distill as much as we can from the Oracle of Omaha. And when I speak about rambling, I kind of really mean it in a way, because when he first came out, he spent 36 minutes talking before we ever took a a question. So that just kind of shows you how much, and that was only Buffett, no one else on stage. That was just Buffett. It was almost a diatribe. And it touched on a number of different things, but I was really actually taken by how much time he spent talking about kind of the question, which is, what is money? He put up a, a photo of a $20 bill on stage and displayed it for everybody. And I look, I think he's very aware that the topic du jour is inflation and it's you know crypto and it's all these things that everyone is kind of flocking to in the midst of all this rampant either asset price inflation or even CPI inflation. And that was very top of mind apparently for, for Buffett. But he made it a very distinct point to come out and say, look, everybody, this is a dollar or you know, a $20 bill. And it's always going to be a dollar in the eyes of the IRS. So yes, you can, you can go gamble with your crypto. You can go do XYZ. But at the end of the day, when you have to pay your taxes, this is what the IRS and the government are going to accept. And he really made that a point. And, and what was kind of also interesting is he, he definitely acknowledged, he said, this dollar might be worth, quote unquote, dramatically less over time. So he wasn't trying to say, look, hey, this thing's going to be a dollar as a dollar as a dollar. But he's saying this could be a dollar that's one penny you know, 10 years from now, but it's still what the IRS is going to accept. The fact that he spent that much time on that topic, even though I think you know, we can argue it's misguided in a number of different ways, I think that it was an interesting point that he took a lot of time to get across to the audience. It's something very important to him that he wanted everyone to hear and acknowledge. And I thought that was just something that was kind of remarkable. Can I also just say that he was hilarious? I mean, he, he was almost a stand-up comic this year. I, especially in those first 36 minutes, he was just knocking it out of the park. There was one point where he was talking about how the subsidiaries of Berkshire shouldn't use banks. They should just go to him, you know, because he's better than a bank, quote unquote. And some guy in the audience yelled out something that was, you know, you couldn't hear. And Buffett goes, was that a banker, you know, back there in the back of the room? <laughs> I was, I was angry. I mean, he was so witty and quick. And again, for being 91, just impressive to not only hold the microphone for that long, but also to make jokes along the way. Just, it's remarkable. It showed it was, and I couldn't tell the difference. Like even before, you know, before COVID, we had the last event, like Buffett seemed like himself. And, you know, I, I hate to say like, but the last event I went to just before uh, COVID, like Munger also fell asleep during that meeting. So, you know, know, no change there. So let's go to the first question. Like we said there in the introduction, we're going to play the question, going to hear what Buffett and Munger has to say afterwards. And then Trey and I will will go in and provide some additional comments to that. So here we go. Hello, Warren and Charlie. It is great to see you both and the wonderful Berkshire managers. Our thanks for everything that you do. My name is Rajiv Agarwal and I am from New Jersey. My question is on market timing. You have always said that it is impossible to time the markets. Yet, if we look at your track record, 
you have had amazing timings with some of your key decisions. You got out of the stock markets in 1969-70. You got back in 72-72-74 when the markets were really cheap. You did the same thing in 87-99-2000. And today, we are sitting on a significant amount of cash when the markets are going down. My question is, how do you time the big market moves so well? We'd like to offer you a job first. Uh, <laughs> I will take it. <laughs> the, uh, the interesting thing is, you know, obviously, we haven't the faintest idea what the stock market is going to do when it opens on Monday. We never have had. We have never made, Charlie and I, I don't think, in all the time we've worked together, and I'll tell you something later on, maybe about how learning takes place, but we have never... I don't think we've ever made a decision that where either one of us either said or been thinking we should buy or sell based on what the market is going to do. Uh, no. Or, or for that matter, on, on what the economy is going to do. We, we don't know. And the interesting thing is, sometimes I get some credit someplace for the fact that, you know, how wonderful it was that we were optimistic in 2008 and when everybody was down on stocks and all that sort of thing. You know, we spent a big percentage of our net worth at a very dumb time. <laughs> and I, I shouldn't say we, it's I. We spent about 15 or $16 billion, which was a lot bigger to us then than it is now. We spent it in the last few weeks, you know, a period of three or four weeks between Wrigley and Goldman Sachs and General at a terrible time, as it turned out. I mean, I, I didn't think, I didn't know whether it was going to be a good time or a bad time, but it was a really dumb time. And I wrote an article for the New York Times and Buy American and all these things. Well, if I'd had any sense of timing and waited six months until, I think the low was in March, and in fact, I think I was on CNBC maybe that day or something, but I totally missed that opportunity. I totally missed you know, in March of 2020, we have not been good at timing. We have, we have been reasonably good at figuring out when we were getting enough for our money. And we had no, had no idea when we bought anything. Well, we always hoped it would go down for a while so we could buy more. And we hoped even after we were done buying and ran out of money that if it was cheap, the company would keep buying, in effect, taking our interest up. I mean, that's stuff you could, you could learn it in fourth grade. But it's not what's taught in school. And, I mean, it, it, so never give us any credit. Well, actually, give us all the credit. In, I mean, go out and tell everybody how smart we are, but we aren't. <laughs> they, it, we haven't ever timed anything. We've never figured out insights into the economy. I mean, when I was 11 years old, March 12th, I guess, 1942, yeah, at uh, March 11th, I bought stock when the Dow was 90, well, it was 101 in the morning. It was 99 at the end of the day, I think. And, you know, now it's 34,000 or maybe it's a thousand less than it was on Thursday. But you know, I just, you know, it's one decision. It's a good thing to own American business. And Harvard Endowment had come to see me and it's 11 year old and, and, you know, or General Motors Pension Fund or something. And, you know, they said, well, no, but we have to have a balance and we have to maybe have 60% of that. And then we have to sit around every three months and listen to a bunch of managers. And it's just done better if they just take it some darts and throw on them and, and just said, we're going to be in America 
50 years from now and 100 years from now, and we'll do better in stocks than we will in bonds. It's amazing how hard people make what a simple game it is. But of course, if, if they told everybody what a simple game it was, then you know, 90% of the income or more of, of the people that were speaking would disappear. So it's really a little too much of us to expect of human nature that people will explain why they really aren't adding any value to what you can do by yourself. Or actually, you're, I hate to use the example, but it, you can't have monkeys throwing throwing darts at the, at the page and take away the management fees and everything. I'll, 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 I'll bet on the monkeys, but I, I don't consider them a superior species and I don't want them to move next door instead of my next door neighbor. <laughs> but that is the way, it, it's just the way it has to be. You can really see the power of being a bottoms-up investor and not focusing on the overall stock market. And whenever I see bottom-up, it really means that you're looking at the individual company and if you like the valuation and you get an adequate margin of safety, you buy it. It's not so much a question of what is the overall stock market trading at. Having said that, of course, whenever you have lower valuations generally, it's just, you know, you just have a better probability for finding something you like. You know, it's, you can equate this to your fish where the fish are, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily catch anything. Actually, one thing that Buffett specifically pointed to was in this question or in his response to this question was how they did not hit the button of the market in March of 2009. They spent all the dry powder they had in 2008. And you know, if they had a crystal ball, they could have waited and bought a better prices. But the future is always unknown. And as it turns out that the investment that they did made in 2008, even though they could have made more money, it still worked out remarkably well. Some of the listeners to this podcast might know the deal that he made with Goldman Sachs. I think that's the most known one from that period. And it takes me to another point, which at least to me was the most exciting thing uh, for the event. And also because Berkshire Hathaway is my largest holding or largest equity holding at least. And Berkshire has really put a lot of cash to work in Q1 2022. We have to keep in mind that before this recent buying spree, there have been a net seller of stocks for the past five quarters. And in Q1, Berkshire spent $51 billion. And Buffett mentioned multiple times, he didn't invest $51 billion. Like it was Berkshire, so him and Ted and Todd. And over three weeks on Q1, they spent $40 billion. And so it was crazy in itself. So let's talk about some of the, the things that they bought. Chevron was one that was disclosed before. So this was at the end of 2021. The fair value of Berkshire's holdings were $4.5 billion. At the end of March, it was valued at $25.9 billion. So even though that it was also helped by a soaring stock price, clearly he's been doubling down on buying shares. And we're going to see in the findings here really soon how many shares that actually was. What was already known going into this meeting was the investment in Occidental Petroleum. He spent $7 billion. And the reason why that was known and the thing which everyone wasn't was that he owns uh, or Berkshire owns uh, 14%. And because Berkshire owns more than 10%, it would have to be uh, filed and have to be disclosed immediately. If you have more than 10%, you're considered an insider. Whereas if it's less than 10%, you regulate differently and you just, just have to disclose it in the next 13F filing, which comes out 45 days after the end of the quarter. So sorry for being a bit technical there, but that's to someone like a, a total geek like me, it's very interesting to, like, to, to see what comes out of a meeting like this and some things we knew and some things we didn't. Yeah, and just on that point really quick, Stig, that's an important point because I think a lot of people 
speculate, at least myself, I mean, you can get caught up in trying to understand Buffett's position sizing, you know, and we can analyze that to death and say, how much money is he putting to work and why? And sometimes the answer is just as simple as he doesn't want to go over 10% of the company. He might be even more bullish on that pick than the dollars would suggest, but it just comes down to that technicality that you spoke of that would limit his investment in something. One note about Buffett's investment in Allegheny, there was a question that was asked about, hey, on the date that you released your annual shareholder letter, you said basically, hey, we didn't find any opportunities. And then now you've invested almost $12 billion in Allegheny. And it happened within like a week of the actual letter, or maybe in a few days of the letter coming out to him investing this large amount. So you would ask yourself, I mean, how are you moving from zero to 12 billion within a, a number of days? And he highlighted the fact that the new CEO of Allegheny is actually an old colleague of his. He was very familiar with him, but also had been studying Allegheny for 40 years. He said he had four file cabinets full of data on the company over time. So when he had this opportunity to meet the new CEO in New York City, he kind of already had in the back of his mind saying, okay, well, I'm going to meet with this guy. I've got a number in my head. Perhaps they'll move on it. And they end up doing so. And so to me, that also ties into the fact of what you were talking about, Sig, about bottom-up investing. Because this day and age, when you see the market going down, it's really tempting for all of us to start thinking a little bit more macro. We can find ourselves being seduced by the market and saying, should I buy in? Is this the bottom? Where's the trend line it's going to bounce off of? You know, all these things. And this kind of investment in Allegheny for me was another testament of how Buffett is not speculating, right? He's not worried about the market and what it's doing at all. He had a number in his head on a company he had done years of decades of due diligence on and was able to make a quick decision, irregardless of what the market was doing, I believe, at the time. He would have made that number offer and they would have accepted it or not. But I just think that it's a difference between his style and a more amateur approach, I would say, where you get caught up thinking a little bit more about what is the market going to do tomorrow? <laughs> I think that's a, that's a really interesting point you have there. Because if you want to learn more about the Allegheny deal, I actually talked with Chris Brunstrom about that on episode 438. And another thing I wanted to take away from that specific episode with Chris was that he talked about how Berkshire doesn't have as much cash as it appears that they, they do. So uh, what Buffett did there in the, the first 36 minutes when he was, he was just talking was he put up a slide with how much cash they had at year end and how much cash they have now. And at year end, they had something along the lines of $156 billion. It might be slightly incorrect, but I do remember on that slide that it said that they had 102.6 now. And also, like in, just to be completely geek, also have to say that that does not include the cash that they have on the balance sheet at Burlington and also Berkshire Energy. So if we add that, we are around like 106. So the Delta has around $40 billion less that they have. And so they have 106 billion right now in cash or cash equivalents. And it seemed like it's a lot of money. Obviously it is. But according to Chris, he said that Buffett would probably not go below 72-ish in cash. And the reason why he said that was that uh, 30 billion, that was the cushion, and 42 billion was matching the claims that we have for a year worth of, of losses on the insurance business. They've put more money in in Q1 of 2022 than they did in all of 2008. I know the dollars and the cash balances were different maybe then, but it just is such a testament to how he is not phased by what the market is doing today. 
Yeah, and, and I think if if you uh, make the ratio on cash to how many assets they have on the balance sheet, it's quite low historically right now. So yeah, he's <laughs> he's still like a swing for the fences. So you got to like that. And lastly, I think it's important to note that he actually bought more Apple, even though his position is almost quadrupled since he bought it. I mean, he's this is called watering your flowers, right? He's watering your flowers instead of cutting your weeds. He's seeing a winner happening and he's putting in almost $600 million more into that position. And just talking about the financials a little bit more, Q1 year over year, the operating earnings grew 3%. And if you look back to Buffett's shareholder letter from 1986, he defines what operating earnings really is in his opinion. He actually calls it owner's earnings in that letter. But I thought it'd be interesting to kind of touch on what owner's earnings are and why Buffett focuses on this as opposed to something like EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA like the rest of the market actually focuses on. We actually have a course on this on our website. You can check out TIP Academy to learn more about this. But essentially, owner's earnings is net income plus depreciation, amortization, non-cash items, deferred taxes, minus capital expenditures. So Stig, you're more of the accountant than me, but maybe you want to touch a little bit on why he focuses on operating earnings and why he makes it such a point to focus on that as opposed to adjusted EBITDA or even you know regular earnings that other companies focus on. So Trey, that's a really good question. And that's because accounting tells you one story. It doesn't give you the full picture. And it actually reminds me before I actually, I don't want to sidestep your question, but there was actually one person who asked Buffett during the meeting, if you were like writing the gap rules, uh, like what would you change? And he was like, well, you know, I'll probably resign because it is tough. You know, it's, it's very easy to bash the accounting rules, uh, but you know, it is what it is. And so there are many, many reasons uh, why he focuses on, on owner's earnings. And the reason why he calls it owner's earnings, and I just want to say also for the record that the, the course that Trey talked about before, it's completely free. You can find it on our website. But the reason for that is we are trying to figure out how much what are the cash flows that we can expect as owners to receive if we own this company? And that's what you're trying to figure out. And so if you have something like EBITDA, EBITDA is a, is a number that Wall Street came up with, and it's used because you wanted to be able to compare different types of businesses across a lot of different industries. But it's not a very useful number for most businesses because EBITDA is earnings before interests and tax, depreciation and, and amortization. Those are real expenses. So why, why would you not include that in your analysis of what you actually get if, if you're the owner? And so he has this equation for how do you calculate what your true earnings are? And that is centered around the, the operating earnings. He does have one variable that's always trickier, and that's just how it is. Whenever you try to predict the future, it's, it's always tricky. And that is, what is your maintenance capex? And um, if, if Trey and I were looking at a company like Berkshire Hathaway, we'll come up with two different types of maintenance capex. It's simply a question of companies spend a lot of money uh, reinvesting back into their assets. Some of that is growth capex, so expenses to grow the company. And some of that is expenses just to maintain the level you're at. And there's no like easy way of, of saying, oh, it's like you know, $22 million and $300,000 and 22 cents. It, like, it doesn't work like that. It's, it's, it has to be an approximate number. Plus, of course, you have all the other things in the formula like, well, what are the operating earnings going, going to be? And so the point of, of saying this and what I'm trying to, to answer on Trey's question is really that there is like no 
find that number you can use whenever you're figuring out the owner's earnings. It's more like a ballpark number. That number would probably be different for me than it would for Trey, but we would probably be, you know, somewhat in the same range one way or the other. And that's just how you do valuation. And so the best stock investors can calculate or well, I wouldn't say calculate, I would rather say estimate what the future owners earnings would be and then come discount it back to today and see how that relates to the stock price. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Khosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. I think it's really important. He's touched on this in a number of different letters, and he touched on it again at this meeting. It's very much a point he wants to get across, and he, he scolds Wall Street and the, account, the accountants and analysts over this kind of thing. So it's just kind of something to, to keep note of. 
And Trey, another thing that you touched on before is that the best way to look at the financial statements for Berkshire is to look at the operating earnings. So the net earnings are all over the place for a company like Berkshire Hathaway because they both have operating businesses, but they also have their portfolio investments. So operating earnings for the first quarter of 2022, that was $7 billion. And the operating earnings for the first quarter in 2021, this is after taxes, that was also $7 billion. The the two numbers are more or less identical. It's like $22 million difference. But in the first quarter of 2021, uh, Berkshire had a $4.7 billion investment gain. And the first quarter of 2022, it was a $1.6 billion loss. And so that really messes up what you look at when you look at net earnings. That's not how you should value a company like Berkshire Hathaway. You should first discount the operating earnings. What do you think that they will be? And, you know, that's somewhat easy to do. They're quite stable. And you sort of probably have an idea. If, if you understand Berkshire's businesses, you can probably make a reasonable estimation of how that's going to grow in the future. And then you have to make an assessment of the stock portfolio and what you expect that to be. Also, you can assign a value to the cash. So that's sort of like the three-step approach that I would use to valuing Berkshire Hathaway. But I, I want to throw it back over to you, uh, Trey. One other important piece about the Berkshire financials that came out that's worth noting is the fact that they have bought back $60 billion worth of stock over the past two years, but there's been no buybacks as of April. And, and in April, if you recall, the stock price, at least for the A shares, got over half a million dollars per share. So people are always speculating around what is the intrinsic value of Berkshire. And you can kind of gauge that by when Buffett is either buying back shares or not. Now, maybe it's correlated to the fact that he was putting money to work elsewhere, which he hasn't been doing over the past two years very much. You could say that as well. But it's just always interesting to know at what prices he's willing to buy up Berkshire shares and when he kind of backs off of that. And to another point, I talked about this on on an episode with Michael Mobison about why buybacks are sometimes controversial. Buffett made a big point here about why he thinks it's kind of asinine to think they're controversial because he compared it to, say, owning a farm, where say you have 10 acres of farmland and you're collecting the money that comes off the farm and your neighbor has 10 acres of farmland as well. And then over the years, you just gradually take over his farmland without having to come up with any more capital. And that's kind of what happens when a corporation decides to buy back its own shares. It increases your position in the overall company because it's essentially taking those outstanding shares off the market. And yeah, that can sound like a great thing. And Buffett definitely positioned it as such. But one thing he didn't really touch on here, which is why it's controversial, is because a lot of these CEOs have very short-term incentive structures in their compensation. So they come in and they're very focused on increasing earnings. And one of the quickest ways to do that is to eat up the, the shares outstanding to kind of artificially boost the earnings per share. And this is only problematic really when they stop investing in capital expenditures, for example. And I thought it was so interesting to see his investments in Chevron and Occidental in this space, because I feel like the oil space is a great example of this, where a lot of CEOs took all the stimulus, bought back shares, and didn't invest in capital expenditures to grow more drills or plants. And now we have this kind of lack of supply in oil, which is increasing the price. And it seems to be a very long-term problem. So yeah, I think Chevron Occidental, they're going to benefit in a way from this. So it's just kind of interesting how the two go together. And one other example I have here about the share buybacks just to provide the significance of it is Berkshire's stake in American Express had it has increased from 11.2% in 1998 to now 20%. 
solely just based on the fact that American Express has been buying back shares. So I guess I'm just interested that he spent a lot of time on this and also made it a point to say, hey, this isn't controversial so long as you're doing it with integrity, buying it as something undervalued. But Stig, I mean, this is not a topic I think to just kind of dismiss, but what's your opinion? It has been interesting that he didn't pick up any, any shares in, in April, given everything that's happened last month. But, you know, again, the opportunity costs have also changed. You know, there's, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if he made more investments, because even though that you now have less cash, you know, the price is just more attractive. So one thing is, is, is to buy more of, of Berkshire. Like the question is, what could it have done with that cash in, instead? And then one last take, I guess, if we're speaking of Chevron Occidental, is just the fact that he did say the play there is not so much because of the price of oil, but that a fast transition to clean energy is highly unlikely. And I have to agree with that because that is kind of what we've been seeing with these supply chain disruptions. We're seeing that we can't just flip the switch over to clean energy as easily as as we might have hoped. And I think that that's just made it more apparent for everybody that that's probably a longer term solution problem that we're working on, but is not as easy as a lot of people think. All right. So with that, we're going to go to the next question, which was from actually Dr. David Cass. And if you remember, I interviewed Dr. David Cass on episode 443. So Becky chose this question from Dr. David Cass about unrealized tax gains. So here it is. A question from David Cass. He writes in, President Biden's fiscal 2023 budget request would impose a 20% minimum tax on the unrealized capital gains for households worth at least $100 million. What are your views on this issue? And if you don't want to answer, maybe Charlie does. Well, we'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) And we should, in all honesty, we we should both say that we, we would be affected by it. If it's 100 million, we'd both be affected. So our point of view is, and I have no point of view. Charlie, I, I have no, uh, no, no point of view that I want, would want to attribute it to. I tend to stay out of the income tax things like this. My, my policy is I pay whatever taxes they, they pass, and I don't want to engage in lobbying about taxes. Okay, so I just thought this was an interesting take because, as you can see, Warren and Charlie kind of kicked the can on this question, as they did with a number of questions here, basically because of its political nature. They don't tend to like that. But it's one of those things that's interesting because Buffett has gone on record to say, you know, tax me more. He's he's made different arguments for why wealthy people should be taxed more. And he's even proposed different ways that people could do it. I'm not agreeing either way with this plan or if it's right or wrong. I just thought it was kind of interesting that he decided to kick the can on it. Personally, it's it's hard to justify. Well, I don't want to touch on it. <laughs> it's hard to, hard to not be political. But um, so... I just thought it was important to touch on this because we're coming up to elections pretty soon. With inflation where it is and asset prices going as high as they have, this is becoming more and more of a topic in the US. And the populace, this is one of the wealth gap is the surest thing to create dislocations in a society. And this quote unquote solution is just one of many, but I thought. This came up, and I just wanted to acknowledge that this question came up, and Becky chose to ask it. I think because of the overall macro environment of where we're going with prices where they are. You know, I I don't have uh, a lot to this question. Like you, I I found it interesting that Becky asked the question. Buffett has seemed to be protecting his legacy more, or the recent annual shareholders meetings. I'm not just going to say like three, four, or five, but like I went through 
the CNBC archive some time ago and went through all of them. And it was, at least to me, it seemed like he was more open, that he was, I wouldn't say more honest because I don't, I don't find Buffett to be dishonest at all, but he probably wasn't as careful choosing his words because he wasn't quote unquote Warren Buffett at the time. He was a very successful asset manager, whereas today he is like the icon Warren Buffett. And every time he says something, you know, it's all over the news the next day. So I kind of felt that, yeah, that was, that was probably why he was like kicking the can. He just didn't want people to get, to get mad at him. All right. So the next question we're going to uh, play is a question about inflation. You know, that's something that's really, really hot. So I think, I think everyone knew that someone would ask about inflation. Becky did it in, the, in this case. And here's the question. This question comes from Andrew Kiesel from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He says, last year, Warren mentioned that inflation had noticeably impacted the prices that Berkshire's businesses were paying and charging. Given those inflationary trends have continued and in some cases accelerated since last year's meeting, could you comment on how this particular inflationary period ranks among previous such periods in the United States, like the 1970s and 1980s? And what can American businesses and citizens do to reduce the negative impacts that inflation brings about? Well, we've sort of attacked them, what you do yourself. And you, know, you develop the skills that, that people are willing to pay for in the future, regardless of what the unit of exchange is. But, but in terms of inflation in our own businesses, it's extraordinary how much we've seen. You know, I think you interviewed Herb Blumpkin at the Furniture Mart, and for two years, the prices have just kept coming in higher for these things. And, with, and we sell them for higher prices, and people have more money than they've had before. And they like to buy. And there are certain things they can't buy. It's like during World War II. You had a lot of money created and people couldn't buy cars and they couldn't buy refrigerators and they couldn't even buy as much sugar or coffee or things as they wanted. They had little stamps and gasoline and all kinds of things. Eventually, you get a lot of money in people's hands and you don't have very many goods. Prices go up. <laughs> you can do all kinds of things to talk it down. And of course, inflation is never the same. Nothing in economics is the same the second time after it happens than the first, because the first affects people's attitudes in the second, and this, their attitudes always influence the, the activity itself. I mean, it is, it is an interesting phenomenon. There are, there are, people write a textbook, and they write it based on the last experience, and people read the textbook, so they behave differently next time, and they, and they wonder why they get a, they're getting a different result than they got the time before. So anyway, we have sent out lots and lots and lots when I say we, I mean the United States government. We have, government has set out lots of money to people. And at some point, you know, the money can't be worth as much as it was when there was less money out. Here's an interesting figure that uh, I think probably will astound you. Sounds me anyway. The Federal Reserve every Thursday puts out a balance sheet. The Federal Reserve, they're complicated institutions, but they do put out this kind of consolidated statement of all the various Federal Reserve banks, all these things that have entered into legislation over the years. And, and but there's a balance sheet. And 15 years ago, roughly, if you look, you know, the Federal Reserve issues those notes I talked about a while back. And uh, that's the one, uh, there's the current one. <laughs> and they print these pieces of paper. And they, one way or another, they got it in the hands of people. Well, the interesting thing is people said cash is dead and all that sort of thing, you know, cashless society. Well, there were 800 billion, go back 10 or 15 years, but there was about 800 billion of currency in circulation. And if you look at last Thursday's report, you'll see there's 
something like now $2.2 trillion of currency in circulation, $2.2 trillion. Now there's about, um, there's 300, well, there's 300, there's 100 and, there's 330 million people in the United States. Let's look at it that way. And with 330 million people, and you have almost 2.3 trillion of currency in circulation, that's $7,000 per person. Every man, woman, and child, in theory, has $7,000 worth of currency. Well, you know, that isn't right, but you, but you do know that the Federal Reserve's bookkeeping is essentially right. They've got that much that's out there. I don't know whether where it is. I mean, I don't know whether it's in Russia. I don't know whether it's in South America. I don't know where, you know, I don't know whether Charlie's got it all. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a staggering sum. You know, cash is dead, and yet we, on average, have $7,000 for every person in the United States. Now, while you're absorbing that, think for a moment what would happen if the U.S. government said, well, they work it out in private and they decide that they're going to send Federal Reserve, and I'm not going to blame the Federal Reserve for this. Somebody back in Washington decides that they're going to send out a million dollars to every household in the United States. And there are 130 million households in the United States or something like that, you know, and, and they're going to mail you a million dollars in cash. And there were a couple of provisions attached to it. One is, if you talked about it in the next 30 days, the money disappeared. So it was like in one of those old TV shows or something, and poof, disappears. And after 30 days, you could spend it. Well, all of a sudden, you've the household wealth of the United States, Federal Reserve puts out an estimate, is $130 trillion or something like that. So basically, you've doubled the household wealth. And all you've done is mail out people, but then you don't tell them you're doing it with everybody. You just say they won the lottery or whatever it may be. And now you've got an amount equal to household wealth that on average people have doubled it. They've got this extra hundred trillion of wealth and uh, in a month they can spend it. Well, what's going to happen? Well, prices are going to go up. But are they going to go up immediately? Well, you don't know the other guy got it. You just know you've got it. So you don't really feel like you've got to rush out buy things. But as soon as word gets around, well, we've mailed out. If you look at the amount we've distributed, the federal government, I'm, not talking, about, I'm just talking about the distribution of resources, we're, we're talking numbers like that, and it affects prices. It has to affect prices. You had 10 times as much you went home and you found out you had 10 times the net worth you had yesterday, but everybody else did the same thing. It had, doesn't increase the amount of bread in the economy or the number of cars. It, it just means that the price, <laughs> the value of this is going to go down, and, and, uh, and it's purchasing power. You can't buy more than exists. So it's a very strange period where we had lots of money sent out to people. One way or another, we're getting it, that, that uh, they didn't find as many place, things to buy as before. And we had supply changes. We have all these things happen. But the end of it is they go out to the Nebraska Furniture Mart, they start buying things. And they do it with our other companies. And they do it in very peculiar ways. And now they're buying, I mean, one thing, you know, jewelry stores were, generally speaking, not a very good business. And, and two years ago, every landlord that had a, real, a jewelry store or multiple jewelry stores in their mall, you know, was wondering how they were going to get their rent. And now every jewelry store virtually is, is doing incredibly better than they ever dreamt with way less inventory because people are just come in and buy. They don't wait for sales. You know, 
when they walk in the store, they're going to walk out and they're going to bought something and uh, they pay for it. They got the money. So we are seeing an unleashing of the fact that we've just mailed a lot of money to people. One way or another, it's very indirect. and It all gets complicated when we talk about a big system, but this is what's happened. And uh, I will guarantee you that if we just mail out a million dollars to every household in the United States tonight, and you don't know that it's happened, you know, you don't really expect much to happen in behavior tomorrow, but somehow at some point, and then if you start doing it every month, we'll say, and people really know you're doing it, then they start anticipating it and buying at a time and forward. I mean, there's a million things that happen in economics, but the the answer is we've had a lot of inflation and it was almost impossible not to have if you're going to mail out the kind of money we've mailed out. And it's probably a good thing we did it. In fact, I think there was one point when the Federal Reserve, in fact, creates the money. If they hadn't done it, your lives would be a lot worse, a whole lot worse now. And that was an important decision. And uh, that's the way to, that's the, uh, why you've had inflation and heaven knows. I mean, it could end. You can throw the com- country into recession. You can do all kinds of things. The country's going to have recessions, incidentally, and it's going to have depressions periodically. And things don't, things will happen differently. And you'll read a newspaper today and you'll wonder a year from now, why was I reading the newspaper a year ago? I mean, it, it's just the way it works. I, when I bought the, that's everything I know about economics and more. And Charlie can probably improve on it. Well, it, it happened on a scale this time. We'd never seen before. Those checks that were just mailed out to everybody who claimed to have a business and claimed to have employees, they, they probably drowned the country in money for a while. And, they, and they, you say they probably had to do it, but it, it was something that had never been done on that scale before. But we had a problem we hadn't had before. Yes. No, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying it wasn't a good no, idea. Yeah. I mean, in my book, Jay Powell's a hero. I mean, it's very, very simple. I mean, he did what he had to do. You know, when when uh, if he had done nothing, it would be the. I mean, he would be be very easy to engage in what you would call thumb sucking. Then, and plenty of I shouldn't say plenty of, but there are other Fed chairmen that would have been sucking their thumbs, and the world would have fallen around them, and nobody would have exactly blamed them. They would have blamed the the virus and the Chinese and all kinds of things. Well, a really interesting company is Japan, where they. First, they buy back all the debt, and then they start buying back all the common stocks. Now, that's really weird. And what did they get? 25 years of stasis. Who would have predicted that? So, inflation. You know, we, Trey and I probably talked about inflation uh, on, I don't know, every other show for the past, I don't know how many years. It's crazy, and it's such a, such a hot topic right now. You know, one thing from the most recent letter that Buffett talked about was how Berkshire owns and operates more uh, U.S.-based infrastructure assets than anyone else, and you know that is classified on the balance sheet as property, plant, equipment. If if you want to look it up, but the, the reason why I wanted to say that is that it's not a superior type of asset to hold in in times of inflation, and it's not like it's necessarily unprofitable at all. Like the, the way that these utility deals are made and all that, they're sort of like a guaranteed uh, profit provided into it. But the inflation piece is very very tricky and. The way to think about it is more like a hierarchy of inflation. Of course, as you mentioned, like owning the assets are good because they come with earning power, but they also comes with a lot of issues. So if you have tangible assets, and Berkshire, as mentioned, has a lot of them, they are the worst to have in time of inflation. Think railroads, heavy machinery, you know, any kind of power grid, whatever. You are paid in old dollars and you have to replace that, those assets in, in new dollars. 
Intangibles are in comparison better. You can think of Google search algorithm. Buffett has this example of C's candy that he's provided quite a few times in his annual letter. And you can look up the 1983 one. That's probably one of the better examples of that. But basically what it says is that you don't have to replace intangible assets. It could be a brand name and you have to do that for tangible assets. So you would prefer those intangible assets instead everything else equal. And then Buffett has this, I can't remember the last time he didn't provide this example during one of the meetings, but he talks about how you should invest in your own skill set. And that is the best inflation hats. And he typically provides the example of being the best doctor in town or being the best lawyer in town. And because you can, you, you have, you have pricing power um, if you invest in yourself and no one can take that away from you. And then finally, I couldn't help but point to the comment that Buffett had about Fat J.J. Powell being a hero. Today, Everyone is bashing the Fed. Some of it, I'd say, is fair enough. But we also have to remember that hardly no one is working in a vacuum. Definitely not Jay Powell and the Fed. For example, there's no doubt that what Powell uh, has done during the, the pandemic has increased inflation. And uh, Buffett also acknowledged that. And he also said, well, you know, you have, to, you have to weigh pros and cons. One thing is that if he hadn't eased as much as what happened, the employment uh, would have been worse off. And so the Fed has a dual mandate set by Congress in 1977, and that is to, and a quote, promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates, end quote. And so what that means is that Jepal has a really, really tough job. <laughs> he has a very tough job because if you ease, generally you lower employment, but you also increase inflation. And if you if you tight, you, know, you, you do the other way around. You know, it's, it's not bad for employment, but it's, it's better for inflation if inflation is running hard. And so that being said, this is not me saying that Powell is a hero. Definitely mistakes have been made. But the point of me saying this, and I also think that's one of the reasons why Buffett wanted to bring this up, was that in economics, you always have to say, and then what? I mean, nothing is easier than lowering inflation. And a lot of people are saying, well, why don't you the Fed just high grades? You're twice as fast, you know, low inflation and, and low inflation is what we need. And yes, then we go back to nothing would be easier in this world than to lower inflation. It's not like Powell haven't thought about, you know, hiking rates faster, but what is the alternative? And so right now the Fed is sitting there trying to figure out the least bad situation. There are no, most likely no smooth landing right now. Uh, I think there's been some, I've seen some research. I want to say this is since World War II. But there have only been three quote-unquote soft landings where inflation has been lowered without employment being hurt. But there was at uh, inflation levels much lower than, than what we have today. So we are looking for the least bad situation. Trey, I want to throw it back over to you. Yeah, so I have a few thoughts on this. I think it's interesting to even highlight J-PAL as a hero. And there's a lot of different ways to look at this. Sometimes you hear this idea that people are upset because the Fed is manipulating the economy. And you have to go back and understand that in 1913, they were developed specifically to do that. <laughs> that, is, that is their job. So yes, he's manipulating the economy by the actions that he took. But to your point, Sig, what's the best outcome for, for, for the world, for America? It's really hard to say. And we can do armchair quarterbacking here and go back and say, you know, I should have done X, Y, and Z. But these guys are operating with speed as quickly as possible with the information they had at the time. And I think Buffett was acknowledging that as well. I was disappointed with his response, though, about just be the best you can be and inflation will take care of itself. I have a big problem with that. I think it's 
certainly the most polished, scripted, PR approved response. And from his position, speaking to 3 million plus people, you can easily understand why his questions would be as generic as that. But you don't have to look too far to see why that doesn't make sense. For example, what's happened in Argentina, Venezuela, Lebanon, (laughs) Turkey. These are places where hyperinflation has taken hold. And it doesn't matter if you're the best doctor. Your purchasing power is going down. And that's what we're seeing here in America, not only with asset prices, but now with general goods. So we're, we're getting it the worst from, from both ends right now. And I feel like that, is, that deserves a little bit more nuance that he could have given, given his position, even though he doesn't love making you know, huge macro statements. But that in particular was a little bit disappointing, but also expected from him. So yeah, inflation has been a hot topic. The Fed has been a hot topic. He's obviously taken side with the Fed. He had a big hand in the Fed's decisions. He's one of the guys that they call on to get advice. So he has some kind of inside experience on the decision. So, you know, he might even be biased that they did the right thing because, you know, he had a big hand in it. So you have to understand that as well. My my last point though is regards to purchasing power. And actually, Preston Pish put up a great chart of this just today, which basically shows that let's just take the US stock market from 2008 to today. If you adjust it for the M2 money supply, it's essentially flat. So that is highlighting the fact that people have this wealth appreciation experience, but in reality, the purchasing power has gone down. So for example, say your home's gone from half a million dollars to a million and a half dollars. Great, but you have to sell that house and go live somewhere, and you're probably going to pay a million and a half or more for the exact same house. So that just shows that everyone is in this together, and the purchasing power has gone down. So I would have liked a little bit more nuance around this discussion in particular. It has been such a hot topic. I think it was a little bit of a cop-out with the, hey, just go out there and be the best you can be at your job and it'll take care of itself. That was just something that I felt the audience, especially, it just didn't go over very well in the room. I think there, you could actually feel some uncomfortability you know, in the room from that response. It just felt a little bit tone deaf. Yeah. And to my point earlier about him providing a bit more I think you refer to as as Pollard answers. I want to say it was back in the early 70s. He wrote this fantastic piece from Fortune magazine about inflation and how it hurts hurts investors. I would really like for him to like go through some of that. Be like, this is actually really, really bad. And here is how, and here is how you can combat it. Instead of being like the nice Uncle Warren, uh, <laughs> which I guess you're you're also referring to. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, 
a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So that was a little bit of a disappointing point of the show, but it didn't overshadow the rest of the show. So for example, there was a lot of talking points that really stood out to me that I'm going to hang on to for a very long time. One of which was this idea of how optical illusions illustrate how your mind can shift from one thing to the other in a split second and how it can be applied to so many different things in life. So let's take a listen to this clip from Buffett. I started buying stocks when I was 11. I've been reading every book in the library on it. I loved it. My dad, you know, it was his business and I'd get to go down to his office and I'd read the books down there and i save the money and... Finally, by the time I was 11, I could buy a stock and I could tell you at that time, I went to New York Stock Exchange when I was nine. My dad took us to New York, each kid to New York once, and he took me. I went to New York Stock Exchange and I was in awe of it. I could tell you how the specialist system worked and the odd lot arrangements and I could tell you history of finance and all of these things. And then I... Then I started, I got very interested in technical analysis and charted stocks and then all kinds of crazy things, hours and hours and hours and, and save money to buy other stocks and, and tried shorting and, and I just did everything. And then when I was 
either 19 or 20, and I can't remember exactly where I did it or something, I picked up a book someplace. It wasn't a textbook at school, but it was in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I, uh, you know, I, I looked at this book and I saw one paragraph and it told me I'd been doing everything wrong. <laughs> I, I just had the whole approach wrong. I, was, I, thought, I thought I was in the business of trying to pick stocks that would go up. And in one paragraph, I saw that that was totally foolish. And I left, I brought something that it's really interesting. It's, let's put up illusion one. Yeah, there we have it. You know, now if you look at that, some people will see two faces. Some people will see a face. And some people will look a long time and only see two faces. But the mind flips from one side to another. And that's there's some name for it that uh, they call it ambiguous illusions or something of the sort. There's other things that talk about aha moments or, or in the old comic strips with Popeye Wimpy would have a little balloon over his head and the light bulb would go on. There's this point where all of a sudden you see something you haven't seen. Well, it took me, I had an illusion that I was looking at, we'll say in that one, two phases. Go to the, let's go to the uh, one labeled two. If you're looking at it from one side, you look, it looks like a rabbit. And if you look the other way, it looks like it, you're looking at a duck. And, and you know, it, it, the mind is a very funny place. And I think people call it an apperceptive mass when you have all kinds of things going on in your mind. And they go on for years and they sit there and get lost. And, and then all of a sudden, you see something different than what you were seeing before. Now, and it took me in stocks, which I was intensely interested in. And I had a decent IQ, and I was reading and thinking, and you know, and it was important to me to make some money on it. Every, I had every, every motivation in the world. And then I read a chapter. I read a paragraph, actually, in chapter eight, I think it was, of The Intelligent Investor. And it just, it told me that I wasn't looking at the duck. I was looking, you know, now it was the rabbit, whatever it may be. And whether you call it a light bulb, whether you call it, you know, a moment of truth, whatever it may be. And that's happened. That happened to me in Lincoln. I mean, it changed my life. If I hadn't read that book, I don't know how long I would have gone on looking for head and shoulders formations and 200-day moving averages and the odd-lot ratios and a zillion things. And I love that kind of stuff. Except it, wasn't, it was the wrong stuff I was looking at. And I've had that happen, and Charlie's had it happen, I'm sure. It happens a few times in your life. And uh, all of a sudden, you see something important that why in the hell didn't I see this in the first place? Maybe it's a week ago, maybe it's a year ago, maybe it's five years ago, maybe it's, maybe it's learning how to get along with people. You know, I mean, whether actually it's, it's better to be kind or not, you know, or whether, I mean, they're just learning how to have, if you want the world to love you, what you have to do or what it's, you know what, when you see it, but you didn't see it for 10 years before. And I don't know whether Charlie's got some thoughts on that or not, but that's happened in a few situations in business where I've looked at a company for, for a decade and, and, and then there's something that it just all gets rearranged in your mind and you 
you know, you can say, well, why didn't I see this five years ago? Or usually, I've, I've had it happen a few times, obviously, and, and everybody here has, and just in different areas of their lives. And you think, how could I have been so stupid? Well, that's what Charlie's, when he was in the law practice, had a partner, Roy Tolls, and he, every smart guy that would get in trouble, usually with, it was guys, and usually it was with women, and the, and the, you know, they'd come into the office and they'd look, you know, down face and everything, and they'd say, it seemed like a good idea at the time, you know, I mean, <laughs> and, and their lives unraveled, you know, in many cases. So there's, there is that apperceptive mass that's sitting in there inside somehow, and every now and then it produces some insight. It's better, actually, if it produces insight into your behavior than whether produces insight to make money. I mean, that, that, and some people never get it. And they wonder why they're, you know, whether their kids hate them or whether there's nobody in the world that would give a damn whether they live or die. In fact, they prefer they die because then they've been courting them for their art collection or whatever it may be. It, it, it's, it's just, Charlie would say, you know, you know, just write your obituary and reverse engineer it. And uh, not a, not a crazy idea. But Charlie, I don't know, what, what do you know about apperceptive masses, which are well, optical illusions? Well, I know that that's the way the brain works and that it's easy to get it wrong. And part of the trick is to get so you correct your own mistakes. And we've done a lot of that. Yeah. Frequently, 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 way too late. Yeah, we've done better with the mistakes than we have with the good, reasonably good ideas. Well, it's so easy to overdo a good idea. That's what's going on now. You have a lot of good ideas that are being grossly overdone. Just tell me, tell me about one that hasn't been, but tell me later when the crowd isn't listening. <laughs> and well, that, that's where, but look what happened to Robin Hood from its peak to its trough. Wasn't that pretty obvious that something like that was going to happen? Tell me again what it Robin Hood, when it came out and it went public and oh. got alert to everybody and all the short-term gambling and big commissions and hidden kickbacks and so on and so on. It was disgusting. Yeah. And it said so last year and they got mad at you and they sold a bunch of their stock and they got the money. and Yeah, but now they're, it's unraveling. God, yeah. God is getting just. But a lot of the insiders have great gotten no, but they've gotten a lot of money from. It. I mean, they were big sellers, as I remember. That may be, but there's a, there's been some justice. I have to agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think this soundbite is so powerful because I think so many people in the audience can relate to Buffett's experience, and this is. One of the few times I've really heard him even talk or touch on the fact that he was in the early days doing things like charting out stocks and you know buying derivatives and just really speculating. And it's that optical illusion idea of your brain flipping and seeing something it didn't before when he picked up the Graham book and realized that he'd been doing everything wrong. As he said there, I love this, that stuff, but it's the wrong stuff. And I think so many people, when they get started in investing, they follow that exact same path. And Again and again, over time, he proves out the idea that buying businesses through inflation, through all these issues that we're dealing with today, over time, proves out to be the actual best approach. 
I like that he also tied this back to Allegheny, where he had been looking at a company for decades, and then all of a sudden it flipped in his mind and said, oh, you know what? This is actually a buy. And then it goes on to touch on Robinhood. And this is maybe an interesting other example where people might be changing their minds a little bit, because Robinhood was just, I think, the biggest story of 2020, even leading into some 2021. It's garnered a lot of attention. It's brought a lot of people into the market, but it has some questionable structures in place as to how it makes money and, and actually how it advertises that to the people that are using the platform. And so, you know, Charlie's obviously not a big fan and said, God is getting just given that the stock price has gone down, I think, 75% in Q1. So the speculation bubble has burst in, in this position exactly. And I love this clip with Buffett where he's saying, Is it wise to criticize anyone at all? Charlie, probably not, but I can't help it. I just thought that was just a classic Charlie clip that you know is so emblematic of their dynamic as a duo and what makes everyone fly out to the show. Yeah, I love the banter that they have between between the two of them. And you know, this is also something that I, I thought a lot about, and I probably come off as like a I don't know, want to change the world, millennial or something like that. As so, that's going to be my disclaimer. As I'm saying this, because I had a guy be on the show not too long ago, and he talked about how whenever he was younger, he was uh, you know, willing to invest in, in, in anything. I, I, I don't think, so please don't hold this against Guy, I'm kind of like paraphrasing here. But his point was that today, whenever he looks at investments, he's always thinking, is this good for society? And he has this, this thesis that eventually, we don't know when this is going to happen, but if this is not good for society something bad is going to happen. And he mentioned, you know, Philip Morris as, as one example and, and saying, you know, I would not invest in that today. You know, they have this big budget set aside for different lawsuits. You know, it's not healthy. So he had this idea that it was just in the too hot pile. It was not something he wanted to do because, you know, karma happens and eventually would have to go wrong one way or the other. And it seems to me that Charlie might feel the same way about Robinhood. They were actually approaching us as an advertiser on the show. And the, the first thing I thought of was, this is absolutely amazing. Like product is amazing, like commission free. Like to me, that was sort of like what stood out, especially, you know, I, as some of the listeners might know, I, I live in Denmark, so it's not uncommon for me to, to spend, you know, $50 on a trade or $80 on a trade or whatnot. And, and that's one, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so if you had to sell it again, you also have to pay the same fee. And so, you know, I was looking at, at brokers in the States and, you know, I think E-Trade at the time was like $10, which to me seemed like, you know, free more or less. And then this app comes along and it's entirely free. And so, you sort of like get this, it really catches your attention. And then as, as you start to research more like, huh, how can you have a business model of being free? You know, Facebook is free. Well, if something is free, you are the product. And that's the case of Robin Hood. You know, that's how they make money. That's because you are the product. And, you know, you might agree with that or you might disagree, but, you know, if you just think it's very important for you to make up that mind with yourself. Like, is this good for society or not? And, and perhaps invest in quarterly. And I'm not saying that it's everything is black and white. I think a lot of people would look at Buffett and say, well, you invest in two oil companies. That is not good for the world. And so I definitely think there, there are some things can be debated there. That's not my, my point at all. But I just wanted to, to mention because Robin Hood was brought up and I know Charlie's always been asked about Robin Hood. Every time I see an interview with Charlie, someone always, I kind of feel like they're trying to like, see if they can get a quote for, <laughs> for a newspaper or something like that. Because they sort of like wanted for him to talk about Bitcoin or for him to talk about Robin Hood just because they know they will get a quote they can sort of like put it up there. And I kind of feel like Charlie knows that too. All right, so let's go to the next question. And well, I probably shouldn't say question because 
I don't even remember the question. I don't think Buffett did either. But Buffett had a really, really long response. And then he said, like, I don't know, 10 minutes in, like, oh, by the way, we also bought something in Activision Blizzard. <laughs> so here's the audio clip. One of the things we bought, one of the things I bought, was bought for a different purpose by a different manager months earlier. He bought uh, roughly 15 million shares of Activision. And I never paid. I knew about the company, but I, I would just see it at the monthly report. But then on January, I don't know, 17th or 18th, something like that, Microsoft announced they were going to buy Activision for $95 a share. Now, when they announced that, at that point, Activision becomes a different kind of security. It becomes what Charlie and I used to call, uh, well, everybody did 50 years ago, we call them workouts or something like that. And they become known as arbitrage. Well, they're not really arbitrage, but they're, they're securities, they're, those things are common stock, whose value depends not on what the market price does, but whether a given corporate event occurs, an announced corporate event occurs. Well, Microsoft wants to buy, Activision will say, well, they, they said at $95 a share. And they've got the money. And obviously, mergers and big mergers, tech companies, all kinds of things have got all kinds of problems with the world generally in terms of opinion. So you don't know what the Justice Department will do, or you don't know what the EU will do, and there are all kinds of things. But at that point, it becomes a different security. And Charlie and I, uh, 50 years ago, we used to do a lot of that sort of thing. And, uh, and we, Gus Levy did it at, Goldman Sachs, and we even went back one time, I think, on British Columbia Power, didn't we, Charlie? Yeah, we certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> a guy named Bennett was up there, and we were trying to figure out whether some, some uh, takeover of the, the power business. I mean, we spent a lot of time analyzing the probabilities of announced deals going through, and we called them workouts. Now the term became ARB, and it hasn't worked where it overall too well in recent years. Now, every now and then, uh, I see something that I want to do in that field, and, but very seldom because they got to be big. The profit is limited. You know, if they say you're going to get 95, you're not going to get 96. And you may, if the deal blows up, you may have a stock that's at 40 or something. So it's a, but we, we did it with uh, Monsanto five or six years ago when Bayer was buying it. And we got very lucky because it turned out to be a terrible acquisition for Bayer. But, but it, it, it did go through because Bayer had the money and they, they went through with the deal, even though Monsanto came with a problem that nobody uh, really understands to the extent of. And we did it with Red Hat when IBM bought it. So, in any event, on September, whatever, I mean, on January, whatever it was, 17th, 18th, 19th, Microsoft announces it. And the stock, which had been at 60, well, let's see what it, I may have a slide here, which I'll find. But in any event, the stock, which had been in the 60s, went up to the 80, 81 or 2. And that looked like not a big enough spread to me for a few days. And then it settled back a little. So anyway, we now own 9.5%, something like 9.5% of Activision. And if we went over 10%, we would file a report. So in order that the news people don't feel that there's no news there, I can tell you that as of 
yesterday, we own about nine and a half percent. If we go past 10 percent, there'll be a form file with the SEC and so on. But it is it is a it is my purchases, not the manager who bought it some months ago. And if the deal goes through, we make some money. And if the deal doesn't go through, who knows what happens? But that's I just want to be sure that if we do file that report, people understand very clearly because there's been some very mixed up stories on that in the past. We want to be very clear that that uh, it was Warren Buffett's decision in that particular case, and uh, and he doesn't know what the Justice Department's going to do. He doesn't know what the EU is going to do. He never talked to anybody in Microsoft about it or anything. He's just read a document. He's made his own assessment, and it can change. And uh, one time, I think we sold a few shares even when I thought it was a little higher than it should be, and turned out those sales were not bad sales. So I just want to... I want to create a little news for you, and uh, I want to, if possible, head off stories which have been incorrect in the past, and which get then get picked up by other media, and corrections never get written. That all the corrections were written by one inaccurate story, uh, and they apologized even to me. Sent both, both the reporter and the ed- and the editor sent me a personal note of apology, and they, they didn't expect to make a mistake. But but when the other publications picked up the story, they didn't bother to pick up the correction, and, and millions of people were misinformed, and probably, literally, by the time it gets spread around. And, and uh, this one I will attempt to head off by telling you exactly what the facts are right now, and we'll see whether we go beyond 10%. But if, you know, it could easily be that if it went up a few dollars, I'd, it's still a $95 deal. It's still, we don't know what the Justice Department will do. We don't know what, what the, the EU will do. We don't know what 30 other jurisdictions we We'll do one. One thing we do know is Microsoft has the money, so that, that takes that one risk out of it. I really like the way that Buffett talks through this because it really shows the complexity of investing and also the concept of resulting, which I think is absolutely crucial for all investors to know. So let's go into a bit more detail about this type of investing. It's often referred to as merger arbitrage or merger arbitrage betting. Uh, even though Buffett calls that out and says it's not really arbitrage, you know, by definition, arbitrage should be risk-free. This is not risk-free. So here are the things we know. We know that Microsoft has offered to buy Activision Blizzard for $95 a share. And this is a deal that's going to close in fiscal 2023. So the question is now, what should we buy the shares for? And if this was truly arbitrage, if there were no risk, Risk comes from the Italian word riscare, which means to dare. It's not risk-free at all. But so if that was the case, you know, you could make the argument you should buy the shares up to $94.99, assuming no time value of money, uh, because you will always get $95 back. But no, there are risks. There are hundreds of reasons why a deal won't go through. It could be financial problems. That's very often what happens. And if you notice what Buffett said there before, he said, we know that Microsoft has the money. And that comment he has is actually very important. One of the common things that happens in these type of things is they cannot get the financing place. It might be financed with debt. They thought they had the deal with the bank, but they didn't, or the bank, something happened to it, whatnot. So financing problems, that's probably the most common reason why this, this doesn't work. Another one is due diligence outcomes. It could simply be something as simple as personality clashes, like, oh, we don't want to work with Microsoft anymore, like they're, we don't like the boss, we don't like the way they treat us, they didn't give us what was promised, not related to financial compensation, but related to something else. Or it might be something due to uh, regulation. 
the government might come in and say, no, can't do that. All of a sudden, it's probably not the case for this specific example, but it could be you have too big of a market share in this specific field. So you cannot do that. It's not allowed. And so if this happens, if any of this happens and the deal does not fall through, shares would trade significantly lower. I think right now, as we're recording this here on May 3rd, the share price is around $75. But if this happened, the share price would follow back. And then all of a sudden, it becomes about the fundamentals of the business and not whether the company will be bought or not, because that's more like the event-driven thing here. So uh, my point of saying all of this is that as an investor, whether or not we think that this quarter of $75 is a good price to pay for a share of this company is that it comes down to your understanding probabilities and the expected returns. As investors, we have to assign a probability to a given event. How likely do we think it is for the merger or acquisition to happen? And if we think it's, say, 8%, we can reverse engineer that to what stock price that would equate to. Trey might think it's 90% likely to happen, so he would be willing to pay a higher price than I would if I would only think it would be uh, 80% as likely. And we also have to keep in mind, if we take the other side, that nothing is 100% certain. So that also implies that a price can be too high. I would say that if I could sell Activation Blizzard right now for $94, I probably would because I do not expect the probability of the event happening to be high enough uh, to justify a price of $94, even though I do think it's going to happen. It's just not high enough. And that's even ignoring like the time value of money. You also have to consider that if it doesn't happen before, I don't know, 12 months, you also have to consider the opportunity cost of, of having tied up your money in that investment. And it's really important to understand the difference between probabilities and the results. Let's say that the event didn't occur. Let's say that this event falls through, like this acquisition, for whatever reason. You would read on all headlines that Buffett has been wrong. It would say something along those lines. However, if you do that, you will be susceptible to what is called resulting. Investing is not that simple. You have to factor in which price did Buffett buy the stock at. He certainly bought it cheaper than $75. And what was the probability of the event occurring at that time? Because even though you are right that the probabilities are, say, 80%, well, 20% of that time, the, you know, the deal falling through will also occur. And I know I make it sound simple, but if something is 20% likely to happen, it does not mean that it won't happen. It just means that it happens 20% of the time. And I think that's very important to understand whenever you talk about investing, because you don't have perfect information. You can only do uh, estimations. Let's say I played chess with Magnus Carlsen. He's the world champion in chess. I, would, I haven't tried, but I'm 100% sure I would lose every single time. And uh, this is a game with perfect information. That doesn't mean that the best player would always best the, the weaker player, even though you have perfect information, but it's most likely to happen. Investing is not so in the short term. And so even if you have the odds on your side, you would have to size your position accordingly to, to find another day. I know that was, a, <laughs> that was a very long, long explanation to that, but I just think it's very important to know this because it really encapsulates what we as investors should know about investing and, and some of the frameworks that we should evaluate both our successes, but also our failures. I like to say that I came to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger for investing, but stayed for the philosophy. And I think a lot of people can relate to this because one of the reasons we all trek it out to Omaha is not just to learn about investing, but it's also to learn about how to live a great life. And one of the best sound bites for me that came out of this entire discussion was it was actually Buffett who referenced a quote that Charlie has apparently said in the past. And that was essentially, write your obituary and then reverse engineer it. 
And what he's talking about there is, you know, your obituary is essentially this phrase that kind of sums up your entire life. And hopefully it says something to the effect of, you know, Trey was a very beloved person by all his friends and family and a very successful person in both business and life or, you know, whatever. That could just be a good example of it. So you say, okay, if that's where I'm going to be at, you know, 60 years from now, how do I reverse engineer that to ensure that that's kind of the narrative for me as a human being once I kind of live on? That's my legacy. And to your point, Sig, these guys are trying to solidify their legacy. It explains a lot of the answers they gave to a lot of these questions, as you put it before. And this is just one of the best like bite-sized pieces I took away from this discussion and a great rule of thumb that I'm going to try and live by and kind of implement in my own life. That's why you meet some of the best people in Omaha. Like they're so, it seems like you have these values in common. I mean, we met each other at Berkshire. I met Preston, well, not, not at Berkshire, uh, the meeting, but like through, through Warren Buffett, through a Warren Buffett forum. You just meet wonderful, wonderful people who, yes, they are interested in money and that might be the first attraction, but it's about so much more. And uh, I would highly encourage everyone to, to go there and meet up with, with the TIP community and train me next year. It's difficult to describe. And I think, I hope we've done a reasonable job on this podcast, but I feel like we haven't because you sort of like have to be there. You have to like feel the bus and like people are standing outside at like 4.45, what, what not in the morning. And you're like, isn't it just, you know, a Q&A session about investing stuff? Like I can watch it, you know, on Yahoo Finance or stream it. Like it is and it's not. It's sort of like, I don't know how to best describe it, but you definitely watch sports in so many ways better home in the couch. But it's not the same as experiencing Super Bowl live. It's just not, not the same. And yeah, you get better angles, you get better slow, slow motion photo. Yes. But whenever you're there, you're there. It's just, it's just magical. I think you nailed a stick. I mean, this is the Super Bowl of capitalism, right? This is the Woodstock of capitalism, as they call it. And so you're exactly right. You kind of have to be there in the room. And it, it's a certain breed of people that show up. You are, if you're there, you're around your tribe and you really feel that. The people who are there are there for the long term. They're putting their a large stake of their retirement probably in this company. We feel like partners of this company and Buffett has done a great job over decades curating that mindset in letting us become what Larry Cunningham would call quality shareholders. I mean, we are that's the feeling you get. You get the feeling like you're part of a tribe, you're around the people that you resonate with and understand and there's nothing like it. And to be quite honest, I don't know how many more years of this we have. So, you know, they're getting up there in age and I would highly encourage, I mean, I do like to say this sometimes, it's kind of like seeing Bob Dylan in concert. You know, it's probably not as good as it was 30 years ago, but like he's still alive out there doing it. You better go see him if you get the opportunity. And this is no different. I mean, these guys are legends. They're the top of their game, even at, in their 90s. And so it's a privilege to go see them. And I highly encourage it if you get the opportunity next year. So that sums up our Berkshire annual shareholder meeting episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Be sure to reach out to us and meet up with us next year. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.